watchers in the fourth dimension. This seem almost like real people. I'm still right behind you. You can't possibly win now. Why don't you both give up? Clean yourselves up and get out onto that dance floor. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And is it tea time already? Mmm, I smell crumpets toasting. We pick up where we left off at the end last time with an invisible doctor venturing into a bizarre world. We're onto the celestial toy maker, jumping straight into our behind the scenes segment. We finally have a new producer. Don, you will be very happy. As we all know, John Wilde handed in his resignation during production of the Daleks' master plan. That was after being overridden by his superiors on something that he actually wanted to do in this serial. Here we have the very first story produced by Inners Lloyd. Lloyd was a relatively inexperienced producer, having previously only produced one episode of television Top of the Form, and he had a little bit more experience in direction, where he previously directed episodes of United, The Flying Swan, and The Newcomers. He had a bit of a baptism of fire with this serial, as he and new script editor Jerry Davis were handed a bit of a shit show by their predecessors. This story was written by Brian Hales, and it was actually the fourth storyline he submitted. Wiles and Tosh commissioned it, and they had used the idea of taking the fantastical nature of the storyline to replace William Hartnell. When that idea was vetoed, Wiles submitted his resignation. So this was already well in the works by the time Wiles resigned. Meanwhile, once they actually read the scripts, both Wilde and Tosh realised the story would be way too expensive to actually make, and Hales was busy working on his own show, which was United, and it was left to Tosh to rewrite the scripts. Tosh ideas included the addition of the Trilogic game, dressing the toy maker up as a Mandarin, and replacing a sequence that was set in a maze with a game of Hunt the Key. So some cost-cutting exercises there. With those rewrites done, Tosh then was like, screw this, I'm going off on holiday. While he was away, another problem with the script arose. Two of the main guest characters that were intended to be in the story were called George and Margaret, and were the title characters of a surreal play by the same name which had been written by BBC head of serials Gerald Savory. George and Margaret, the play was a little like Waiting for Godot in that the, the titular characters never actually show up. However, Savory revoked his permission to use the characters once he'd read the script, and the script had to be rewritten again, this time by Jerry Davis. So we have a script that was originally written by Brian Hales, rewritten by Donald Tosh, and then rewritten again by Jerry Davis. When they realised that the arc had gone massively over budget and that they had to make this story on the cheap, both Tosh and Wiles expressed their disappointment over the changes being made, with Wiles going as far as to say that he wished they had just decided not to make the story. The man responsible for trying to make some sense of this mess on screen was Bill Sellers, the director. This was his first and only contribution to Doctor Who. Outside of this, he's best known for creating the soap opera Triangle. He directed episodes of Compact and United, which is the show that keeps coming up in this story. And then produced a couple of shows later in his career. One was The Brothers, which starred a, a gentleman by the name of Colin Baker, and another called All Creatures Great and Small, which starred another gentleman by the name of Peter Davison. So the Who connection is strong here. Musically, we have Dudley Simpson returning to score this one. This was his fourth time working on the show, and as I've mentioned before, he'll become the regular composer in the 70s. In the designer's seat, we have the final work of John Wood. Well, not quite final, he'll actually act as visual effects designer on season 6's The Space Pirates, but this is his final credit as designer. Just as a reference point, he previously lent his talents to The Web Planet, The Chase, and The Mythmakers. With that, it's time to move on to our short summary, which, this time around, is in the hands of Riley. <laughs> 
In this serial, we discovered that the Doctor was dematerialized by the Celestial Toymaker, a person desperately in need for video games to have been created. The Toymaker takes away the TARDIS and challenges the crew to defeat him in a variety of games. The Doctor gets turned into Thing from the Addams Family and forced to do what I imagine is Bitcoin mining for the entire serial. Dodo and Steven play Blind Man's Bluff, Hopscotch, Heideki, and they all avoid the electric chair. In the end, the crew win the games, and the Toymaker is forced to create a new gaming world for himself. May I suggest Dave & Buster's? <laughs> Thank you for that, Riley. So that moves us into our discussion, starting with the first episode, The Celestial Toy Room. We pick up where we left off at the end of the last story, which has is becoming a thing again. You know, we went through a period where there was perhaps a little bit of scope for some fun in between stories, but we're, we're back into the one story leading directly into another. And we have the Doctor is both invisible and intangible. I'm okay with the Doctor being invisible and tangible, all this nonsense. How in the world were Stephen and her, how are they supposed to follow him? Because he's <laughs> invisible. That's my main question. They were like, oh, let's follow the Doctor. How? He needs to walk really loudly. <laughs> but he's intangible so he can't make noise when he walks because he's not walking follow his voice i guess just throwing that out there did not make any sense there's a lot about this story that doesn't make a lot of sense i feel like this one in general has a very very simple concept they all have to play games for their lives none of which are particularly intelligent or strategic for that matter I mean, a lot of them are just luck. No. Even the one that, that the Doctor has, I mean, the Trilogic game, also known as Towers of Hanoi, is so simple, there's even an algorithm to solve it. I mean, have you seen those games on Facebook? It's all over the place. That's true. <laughs> That's very, very true. Yeah, it's, it seems like the, the most interesting or intriguing element of any of these games is the riddle that leads into them. But then even so, the riddle doesn't really oftentimes play too much into how you know the strategy of the game because like we said it's usually just either a process of elimination game or just a roll of the dice game or just a physical feat game and they're gonna cheat anyway so yeah <laughs> i don't know about you but if i wasn't already afraid of clowns i would now be afraid of clowns oh they were great weren't they oh man oh, they're so and, good and the, I... and the voice and the voice oh <laughs> yeah yeah that was kind of creepy i don't trust anything that has to paint on a smile yeah i mean you already know riley you asked me last year if i'd go and see it chapter two with you and i i said absolutely not so you already know my thoughts on clowns <laughs> so where do, where do joey and clara rank in your dreaded clown ranking upper half or bottom half at least uh they're, they're some of the lesser terrifying clowns in in my opinion Okay. <laughs> when we next get creepy clowns in Doctor Who and all the way in the Sylvester McCoy era, they are much creepier. All but right. One thing I did pick up on these, so Joey, the male clown, communicating exclusively through a horn. Did anyone else get a kind of Harpo Marx vibe? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. And I also felt that this episode in particular was probably very visual in the entertainment value. Well, the stills looked great. The stills did look great. We've got the obstacle course... We've got clowns who I think in their very nature are fairly visual in terms of entertainment anyway. We have the dollhouse set. Right. So I feel like this is one of those stories which really does lose a huge amount in only being available to us in, in audio or reconstruction format. I agree with that, especially the third episode where it seemed to devolve into a bunch of people yelling at each other. <laughs> well, there's that. And it's also impressive while they didn't have as much money 
I thought they did an excellent job with the set design, what they were doing with the clowns and the obstacle course. I was like, that's legit, could be an obstacle course. I was impressed. Yeah, for having no budget, I liked the creative way that they represented what they were trying to do. I mean, it was no American Gladiators obstacle course, but they got the job done. (laughs) <laughs> I, I thought it was really crazy to me was at the beginning, Dodo, one of the things she says is that the place looks dead boring. I'm like, are you kidding me? This place is crazy looking. This is amazing looking. I had no idea why that was thrown in there. Yeah, because I'm sitting there. I'm like, it reminds me there is a place uh, in Knoxville called Discovery Zone. I don't know if they were a chain or not. It's kind of what it reminded me of when I was a kid. And that was so much fun. Obviously, you're going to play the floor as lava. I'd have fun with it. Those were a chain and we even had a couple in England. I had a couple of birthdays when I was like seven and eight years old at the, at the Discovery Zone. Can we discuss the Toymaker's costume? I'm kind of confused by it. <laughs> All right, Riley, explain your confusion. Are they going for an Asian thing here or am I like missing it? Because that's all I can pick up on. And it just I'm trying to figure out the connection between Toymaker and Asian clothing or I'm, I'm just trying to figure out why they went in that direction. I, I'm not entirely sure why they went in that direction. I seem to recall that someone, I don't remember who, made a connection between the, the Trilogic game and, and Asian culture. This is something Sandifer talks about, and she goes as far as to say that the role is obvious yellow face. She goes as far as to claim that Michael Goff, the legendary Michael Goff, puts on a very slight Asian accent, which I was specifically looking for or listening out for, and I didn't hear it. And she goes as far as as to say that this is single-handedly the worst Doctor Who story ever because she equates it as being the one story that is outright racist. I think she's reaching just a little bit. The arc? Yes, I agree with that. (laughs) This one? No. Well, this is the only Doctor Who episode to uh, use the N-word. I see that as being more of a product of its time. I yeah, don't think that's true. It... True. I'm not sure I agree with you on that, Don. So by this time, I would say that it was quite plainly unacceptable. The civil rights movement really was in full swing. In Britain, we had had a large amount of immigration from our former colonies, including former colonies in Africa. I don't think that that word was that much more acceptable in 1966 as it is in. 2019. I don't think anything in this was deliberately racist. I think that the dropping of the N-word was horrendously misjudged. They probably wanted to keep the, the rhyme in its original form. I think that was a mistake, but I don't think it was going out there to be racist and offensive, but it blatantly is. I don't think they meant for it to be, but it, that was a bad call. Very <laughs> much so. Since John Wiles had some say in this story, we can continue to blame him even though he's officially gone. Hey, he made one good call on this, which was said, maybe we shouldn't make this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So back to the toy maker. He's played by the legendary Michael Goff, who, of course, would be most famous for going on to play Alfred in the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher Batman movies. So we're getting Uh, him nice and early in his career here. He was actually, at the time, married to a lady called Annika Wills, who we will meet at the end of the season when she is introduced as the new companion, Polly. Another another little connection there. One thing I find fascinating about the Toymaker is I feel like this is where we're starting to have a broader mythology built. So the Doctor's already heard of him and yes. even alludes to having been to the Toymaker's realm 
previously. So we're starting to get off-screen adventures. I may be wrong, but I got the feeling that later on, I think when they were doing those weird costumes for the Time Lords, I think they may have drawn a little bit from the Toymaker, <laughs> especially around the shoulder pads. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, the shoulder oh, pads. Call. So this episode is really the first in a set of fairly formulaic episodes. Yes, but I have some fun things. <laughs> All right. Anything else on episode one? Just a small little touch that I thought was really nice was at the end when Joey and Clara are defeated. Once Joey slips off the uh, obstacle course, at the same time, Clara, it was a good still, Clara just having like slump over. And they already like there was some descript, uh, description in the um, in the reconstruction that said that when she was being shook, uh, Clara, she was had like a ragdoll kind of like physical acting, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, with that, you know, we, we're led to think that Stephen and Dodo get to the TARDIS, but it's just an empty shell. And that leads us into episode two, the Hall of Dolls. Which is really should be about the Hall of Chairs. <laughs> and let me talk about the chairs. So I will describe each one. So chair number one <laughs> is the tilt-a-whirl chair. Chair number two is the frozen chair. Chair number three is the toaster chair. Chair number four is the invisible man chair. Chair number five is the boring chair, which is obviously the throne. Chair number six is the incredible shrinking chair. And chair number seven is the hashtag chair. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. In tonight's exciting episode, Julie talks about chairs. <laughs> I mean, Georgia Tech had a, had a class that was history of chairs, so, you know. <laughs> really? Uh... Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> the funny thing about the chairs and that setup is that I felt like uh, you walked into like either a pricing right, prices right pricing game or let's make a deal. A very it was kind of game show setup, but I did like that the different designs are so outrageous and strange and gave it a very uh, weird quality. I, I I I thought it was nice. I thought it was a nice little setup, a nice little set piece. I actually really liked what uh, what Loose Cannon did on the recon with the chairs as well. The, the CGI on the spinning chair, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> they did mm. some pretty good low-budget ways of doing things, like shrinking the people and all that. That was pretty funny. Yeah. I was just going to say, I actually kind of enjoyed this episode. While, yes, kind of game showy, a little bit formulaic, I liked how they, like, Steven and Dodo stopped to think, and they're like, these guys are carts. And that's really weird. So let's talk about that. Because, you know, it's like, all right, we have the Queen of Hearts and the King of Hearts and, and the Knave. I had to remind myself why we were using Knave instead of, you know, the Jack and, and things like that. But I was just like, oh, okay. All right. I, I kind of liked that spin on it. It was kind of fun. Maybe I was misinterpreting it. I felt that maybe there was like, I don't know, maybe there's a subtext or maybe I misread it, but like there was that part where the Queen... It was specifically mentioning like we're real, feel how real you know, feel his arm. It's real, we're real. And later on, I have this sense that, and maybe I'm reading, like I said, too much into it. But I feel like along the way, all of the you know competitors for the toy maker all feel like people that lost the toy maker and were forced and now forced to do this forever. See, that's what I. And, that's the impression I got too. Yeah, which yeah. really, if you think about it that way. Oh, yeah. There is a real darkness underlying this entire episode because they only once more, I think, do uh, Dodo and Steven bring this you know point back up. And it's it's really kind of like 
like terrifying of having to like play these games forever. Well, and also that adds some real menace onto Steven and Dodo because if they lose, that's what's going to happen to them. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like that mix of I I like the spin on it and part of it is because they took that darker spin which they sometimes do and sometimes don't. So, you know, more stakes. Yeah, I also thought of it in another way. Like, you know, <laughs> as Julia was saying, like, you know, these are playing cards. Well, then my other thought was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't know what power the toy maker has. He can create his own world. So is it possible, and this sounds just as terrifying, is that he creates, you know, from a playing card, an entity, a thinking entity, and then he allows that thinking entity to become self-aware and realize what's going on and believe that it's real, even though it never ha had a life before that. It was just a playing card. I mean, it just, my mind <laughs> was rolling through this the entire time and it only got touched on maybe, like I said, once more. And I felt like, oh man, like this is, man, I, I know this is, you know, 1966 Doctor Who and this is kind of mind bending, but like, man, I really would have loved for them to delve into this a bit more. Maybe maybe a, a subplot to, to liberate these people. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, the implication is you have the, the same three actors who play the majority of the characters within the Toymaker's realm. So the kitchen boy, Cyril, and the knave are played by the same person. Clara, Mrs. Wiggs, and the Queen of Hearts is the same actress. And then Joey, Sergeant Rugg, and the King of Hearts is all the same actor. So... I think the implication there is the toy maker has these three people who are just eternally trapped and they're having to take on all of these different guises to take part in these games to try and trap more people. See, I thought they were all supposed to be different people, but this was the cheap episode. And because they had them in different guises, they could get away with it. So there is a comment, I think, in the fourth episode when Cyril shows up. I think Dodo says, didn't we see you before as the, the knave? I might be misremembering that, though. Certainly Cyril's coming back in, uh, time and time again. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> More on him to come. Let's talk about Dodo just deciding to sit down on a chair. <laughs> kind of brave. <laughs> also kind of living up to her nickname. <laughs> She's pretty dumb through this entire story. I mean, she yeah. laughs her way like there's zero menace through the entire story. Ay. I feel like... Uh Doctor Who, under both Verity Lambert and John Wiles, was a children's program that had appeal to the whole family. I feel this at times is devolving into playing towards younger children. And I'm not sure if that necessarily works for me, particularly when you look at Dodo. Yeah, and the frustrating thing for me is Stephen, as much as I like Stephen, he needs someone to play off of. Because I think by himself, he's he, he can't carry it by himself. And with him and Vicky, it worked really well. They had a really good dynamic. And Dodo does not does not help that dynamic at all. And so Steven is trying to act the smarter, the more in control. And that's not what I like about Steven. So for me, it's less about the what audience are we even adhering to. It's you've changed the role of the companion for the worse. It probably doesn't help that the doctor is basically missing 
through most of the story. So your only real character interactions are between Dodo and Steven. And like you said, they just don't have the right dynamic. I mean, to even get to the point of the episode of the serial where the toy maker just also removes the doctor's voice, I was like, come on. <laughs> I mean, then what, what are we doing here? We, we might as well have done that two episodes ago then. For me, when his voice is removed, this is very much John Wiles in apotheosis. Mm -hmm. He's had all of these problems behind the scenes with William Hartnell. They don't get along. So not only is he trying to remove him from, from the program by making him invisible, he then also removes his ability to speak. I, I have no words for that. This, this week, the Doctor is played by an empty coat hanger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I want this to be the last thing I say about John Wiles. My problem with Wiles isn't that he was a bad producer. I think he is, but here's why. All of the behind-the-scenes stuff that should stay hidden show up on screen. Getting rid of Vicky. Suddenly, you know, the whole Daleks master plan is kind of weird, and you have a companion that almost immediately dies because, well, you brought her on, then you realize she wouldn't work, then you have to kill her off. You have things like this, where this story suffers because you wanted to fire Hartnell, you weren't allowed to, but you still have this script where he just disappears and it's already been rewritten like three times. So you don't have the time or money to rewrite it again. His mistakes show up on screen instead of saying safely hidden. That's why I think he's a bad producer. I that completely like a fair agree. Assessment to me. Yeah. And so the original plan for this story, if Wiles had had his way was when the doctor reappeared at the end, he would have been played by a different actor. If we play this out assume that that had happened that changes the nature of the show as we know it in 2020 mm -hmm. you know you don't get regeneration mm -hmm. so would the show have even carried on past the second actor to play the doctor the chances are they would have found a way they would say we've replaced him once before we can do it again maybe they just have the celestial toy maker show up every three years to do it but <laughs> You know, it, it wouldn't be the same show as, as we all grew up knowing, fundamentally. And I'm very glad John Wiles did not get his way here. So, with the chairs game out of the way, and Hartnell, uh, Hartnell's voice removed, that takes us into episode three, The Dancing Floor. We start out with the toy maker congratulating the Doctor on his choice of friends. Now... I agree on Steven. Steven seems like a very solid chap to me, but Dodo, really? <laughs> Anyone? I'm trying Anyone? not to rag on Dodo, but so far she's not really doing it for me as a companion. Yeah. At least her accent has calmed down and settled down into something a bit more consistent. But it's not. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. It's, it's really difficult when we first had Barbara and then we had Vicky as such strong female companions that we've had consistently throughout the show. And then now we're expecting another one and we don't have that. Right. So it's hard. And I think it's very telling that, um, that Lloyd and, and Davis decide that when Jackie Lane's contract is up, then they're not going to renew it. They're going to bring in their own companions. So the dancing floor, you know, yes. With not Steven the, and not Dodo. the most, 
not the most terrifying title. No, no. It's uh, not. And then most of it is in the kitchen. <laughs> and most of it, you can't tell what's going on because everyone is just yelling. It was like the Feast of Stephen all over again. I had a lot of yeah, trouble getting through this one. The messy kitchen. That's what they should have called it. The yelling <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> yelling. The screeching kitchen. So who who the, who is Rug and Wigs? Is that like some English like char- characters like from like like pantomime or something that I'm not aware of? I think those were the two characters that had to be renamed, right? I don't know. I have no idea wh- how they rewrote that. I think they're just playing on on some kind of archetypes of the head of the kitchen and uh, an old fashioned policeman. I I think they're just archetypes they've used. I do. I do definitely enjoy this. One of my the kitchen scene has. Uh, I, I like the the Sergeant Rug and Steven like you know brush up, and kind of like you know stand off. Uh, I like that a lot, especially with Steven pulling the uh, the Joe Pesci. Why don't you go back to your box line? It was quite enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that tension between the two of them, I thought, was some of the best pieces of this entire story. Well, you, it's funny you can watch the entire. The entire serial, you can just see Steven just keeps getting angrier and more irritated and annoyed with everyone but the doctor through the entire thing. Because he keeps on like yelling at Dodo, like, don't pay attention to them. They're delaying us. He, sh- he keeps saying that almost like in this episode and in the, in the following episode. So Don may have promised not to rag on Dodo too much, but I've made no such promise. <laughs> and maybe if Dodo had a brain he wouldn't have to yell at her about that true i did find it funny that i've already forgotten his name mr soldier guy thought rug Rug thought dodo was such a lovely name i'm like really (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah let's there's no accounting for taste i'm assuming there wasn't any sergeant rug and mrs wiggs spinoff from this episode at all <laughs> big finish are you listening <laughs> oh boy no <laughs> there has not today been the return of sergeant rug and mrs wiggs okay well as uh, and uh, once again we have a game where it's find the key in the messy kitchen with domestic abuse going on in the background and <laughs> the key is in the pie Nothing clever about it. I don't think there was anything in the riddle that hinted that it would be in the pie. Nope. Nope. So it's nope. just like... And Where else would it be? Just... Right. And we spend 12 minutes because, and we haven't even gotten to the dancing floor. A lot of filler here. Yeah. A lot and of filler. Can I say one thing that I'm really sad about? Because I'm going to move on to the dancing floor. Is that we don't get to see Steven dance. I... Yes. Yeah. Um, Especially I, not just dancing, but... Dancing without any control. That to me sounds <laughs> hilarious. I thought oh. the dancers also looked delightfully creepy. Yeah. I have my problems with the execution, but I like that they did this sort of kinder horror concept for this. And it's it's something mm-hmm. I would I would like to see redone in a better, less filler way. Yeah, and, and I, I see what you mean by that. That's a that's a good touch. That that horror touch has a lot of potential here, obviously. No, you could still, I mean, with some real talent, and even in 1966, I think that could have been done. I'd love to see them t- try to tackle something like this again now. 
on the show. That type of horror. Yeah. That'd be good. Yep. I also enjoy uh, just one more time with Rug and Wigs. I, I really love that when the Toymaker comes down and you know, chastises them for failing, he has the line of, clean yourselves up and go out on that dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> After Rug and Wigs fail, the Celestial Toymaker goes to his dollhouse, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to pull out the you know most dangerous most terrible, most just dastardly thing I have. The schoolboy? Is that yeah. something that, like in, in, in English like culture that I'm unaware of? Or are they like schoolboys known to be menacing or troublesome or terrible or something? Like a real pain in the ass or something? So the serial version of a schoolboy was, was meant to be based off of Billy Bunter who was a fictional schoolboy created by a gentleman called Charles Hamilton under the pen name of Frank Richards. He was originally in a boys' weekly story paper called The Magnet. And from 1952 to 1961, there was a BBC TV show. And he was greedy, fat, racist, deceitful, basically just generally a bit of a nasty character. And I think that the schoolboy from a private school is is in certainly in this context meant to be, you know, the kind of character who's only out for himself. And that's the the archetype that they're playing on here. Cyril even says that he's also known as Billy in a line of dialogue. Yes, he says, my friends call me Billy. No one calls you Billy. You have no friends. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> and this became so obvious that this was meant to be Billy Bunter that the fourth episode even had a disclaimer basically to protect them from legal action on behalf of a complex on a of a copyright claim um so i mean that was very very obviously meant to be a parallel okay there seem to be a lot of copyright issues with this particular serial yes <laughs> yes was there any particular reason why they tried so many things that would cause copyright issues? I just feel like with an original show like this, you wouldn't try to base too many things on something very specific. I think they were going the homage route, maybe. Maybe it was the fourth rewrite might have something to do with it, and they couldn't think of anything else under a time crunch. I think the one where they had to change the name was actually written by someone that worked at the BBC. So that's why I yes. think it was a winking homage and they didn't expect the person to read it and go, oh, this is crap. No, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So so Gerald Savory, who wrote George and Margaret, was the head of serials. So he was at the time John Wiles slash Innes Lloyd's boss. And he had originally agreed to allow George and Margaret to appear and then read the script and said, oh, hell no. <laughs> now, the known as Billy line was actually ad-libbed by uh, Peter Stevens, the, the actor who played Cyril. So that wasn't in the script. I'm sure the lawyers were really happy about that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, what, what also took it out for me, I, I feel like we just already moved on to the next episode. The final test. Could, yes, the final test is, I feel like if they had gotten a young actor for that, it would have been a lot better. I just I, I couldn't I couldn't accept that he was a child. You don't believe in middle-aged schoolboys? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something very very disturbing about Cyril. Oh yeah. I mean the the fact yeah. he's played by a man in his 40s just makes the character even more kind of menacing and creepy to me. Absolutely. The whole time I'm just like I could not stand that character. I had some problems getting through that episode actually. 
See, I actually, I actually really, really enjoyed the final episode. I think because it was we we have you know the episode exists, and we could see some some of the visual cues that made this a bit more unnerving. Michael Goff, in particular, I thought was a lot creepier when you can actually see him as the toy maker. He has a lot of inflections that add a lot to his performance. Likewise, I think Cyril, there's an arrogance about him or a smugness when combined kind of with his campness and, and the age of the actor makes him really, really creepy and unnerving. I thought it was a it was really well done and really well directed, honestly. I don't disagree with you, but I still admit I had problems watching it. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I just wanted uh, to smack him. I, I found this easier to get through than the third episode because it was just a lot of a lot of yelling in British, and I was ready for it to be. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mention that, Don, because I swear um, there's a moment in the shot where they're about to start the game with the schoolboy, and Stephen and Dodo, when he, when the schoolboy's back is turned, share a look, and I swear it looks like they're like, should we just beat the hell out of them <laughs> instead of playing the stupid game? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I I definitely have somewhere in here that says uh, Stephen would really kill Cyril given the option. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Stephen would have done that. You'll notice how how 100%. much he mourned him when he electrocuted himself. <laughs> like, oh, God, what he deserved. <laughs> <laughs> so while this game is going on, I'm I'm gonna continue beating the dead horse. Can we talk about the stupidity of Dodo again? Uh, <laughs> oh no, you're hurt and bleeding. <laughs> Oh, no, e even from the start, I think I'm going to enjoy this game. Really, Dodo? After the the four games you've played previously, you think you're going to enjoy this one? What is wrong with you, guys? Okay, look, when you're that also, dumb, life is always fun and enjoyable. <laughs> because you don't know any better. <laughs> it's but it's electric hopscotch, basically, in which if you touch the floor that you're not supposed to, you die. That's not fun. <sighs> yeah. And then she falls for... Cyril's cheating with his faking of an injury. What a piece of shit he is. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then she nearly falls on the floor from Cyril's trap that Cyril literally just fell victim to himself. Yeah, after she just <laughs> like, saw it. <laughs> come on, Dodo. Come on. <sighs> okay, so Dodo is... I feel, honestly, through this, I feel so bad for Jackie Lane, the actress who plays Dodo, because... She is so poorly served by both the stories we've seen her, her in so far. Poorly served, but well-named. <laughs> exactly. So I think about this time, the doctor is finishing up with his uh, construction block set, or what is it? The Tetralogic <laughs> the, Game? The Trilogic Game. Trilogic Game. Yes. Which can apparently just be skipped through to the next move anyway. Basically, the whole climax comes down to the doctor using Siri to finish it for him. I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and and the climax is such. I mean, the the that last bit of tension and, and conflict is such a muddled mess. I had to go back through the transcript and like, <laughs> what is happening? Why? Why is this? And like, it's just the the flow is all wrong with how it's written. It's like all of a sudden, oh, wow. It's like they, they wanted to throw in like one final conflict and they really couldn't think of anything else. So they had to pull something out of their ass. That's what it really felt like. That ending. You're not wrong. 
Yeah, I, I and it, I was, oh, wow, yeah. It just threw me. I, I, I feel like a, a study should be done of just like that last half of that episode about like strong tonal shifts, completely just like everything. I mean, oh boy. Yeah, it just kind of just makes my brain hurt thinking about it. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> at this point, we find out that the toy maker is immortal. So even if the Doctor and Co. win, the toy maker is still going to be there. And remember how when we talked about the web planet, how some of the expanded media has labeled the Animus as one of the great old ones? Animus. Yes. Mm. The toy maker is also. Uh, according to expanded media, another one of the uh, elder gods or the great old ones. Can you really blame them for trying to set it to do that? Because frankly, he was really set up as being a recurring adversary, which is yeah. funny considering nobody wanted to make this serial to make that kind of claim for your bad guy. It's pretty funny. I think it's the premise. I mean, like, you know, just think about the concept of, of, of this character and like the conflict that we have here. I mean, I mean, conflict going into the first episode not the ending conflict it's a it's a fun great idea you know it's it can you know it it, it almost writes itself you just you know a battle of wits going on and on and on and they kind of like you know messed up mess it up by making it child's game by children's games but then it could have worked if you did it in a creepy horror way which was kind of working but they didn't pull that off enough either but the concept is there the concept is solid the premise is solid it won't surprise anyone to hear that Big Finish have brought him back a couple of times. Shocked. Shocked I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would actually judge them if they hadn't done that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what are, Do you know what, what they do with them at all, like in detail? So the, he was originally meant to come back in the original plan for season 23 of the show on TV. Oh. He mainly just plays Uno and talks to himself through the entire thing, but... <laughs> They'd even persuaded Michael Goff to come back. There was going to be an ep a story called The Nightmare Fair, and the original plans for season 23 got shelved when the show was put on hiatus. So Big Finish have adapted the script for, for that story, and then a lot of it is the, um, the kind of myth-building around the great old ones. There's a whole um, series of the Seventh Doctor and Ace going up against you know these beings from the beginning of time, one of which is the, the Toymaker. They even give the toy maker a sister as well, called Hecuba. <laughs> the Celestial Toy Maker and Connect Four. The Celestial Toy Maker and Flashlight Tag. <laughs> Although, to be fair, Nightmare Fair sounds like it could be a really cool premise. It does. Yeah, they were going to set it in, um, in Blackpool. There was basically going to be a deadly video game arcade. It probably would have been really boring TV, to be honest. <laughs> See, I wasn't expecting a, a video game. I was expecting like a an outdoor fair that has all like the like the fun house. Yeah, like creepy circus kind of stuff. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So if you think about it, 1986, when the Nightmare Fair would have been made, really that's when you were starting to see arcade games showing up in, in places like fairs. So it was going to take place in a fair that had some arcade games. Yeah, so I went to it, fairs it, that didn't have yeah, those. That sounds so. less good. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> the more you talk, the worse it sounds. I have it. I, I got it. This is the premise. This is how you bring them back. 
you have him be like a behind the scenes like enshrouded in mystery know it mystery ceo of a chain of like chuck e cheese style like <laughs> children's pizza places oh god <laughs> uh... all right so we end this <laughs> eating candy from cyril like what <sighs> that made no sense poison jelly babies <laughs> I guess we'll find out what's wrong with the Doctor next time around. Cliffhanger! <sighs> Will the Doctor get this bad taste out of his mouth? <laughs> Never. Did he bite down too hard on a Jolly Rancher? <laughs> hey. Alright, so I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. Let's move on to the metrics. Any nominations for the camp count? Cyril. Oh, the, the knave. Yeah, the knave. Cyril, the knave. I think even the toy maker at times is a little bit camp. It kind of had to be, really. He yeah. spent most of his his screen time talking to himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yet he sold it because he's Michael Goff and he's yeah. awesome. What should we give this? Like a six or a seven out of ten on campness? Unless there's any dissent, seven it is. So that brings us on to our scores. I get to go first this time. For me, this story wasn't terrible, but at times it was rather repetitive. I think Michael Goff was definitely a high point. I don't have, in general, a huge amount to say other than that this was a bit of a mess, but at times a somewhat enjoyable mess. I think for me, this is going to get six pieces of the Trilogic game out of ten. Don, over to you. I think I've said most of my thoughts on this serial already. To me, this is like an inverse of the arc, which was a horrible idea executed quite well. This is a really good idea. I love the concept that kind of failed in the execution, mainly because you're going through that transition from a different you know, running staff and producer and all that. When it works, it works. My main problems were the pacing, and it never really felt like there were any stakes because they would just sort of move on to the next thing. I'm going to give it five and a half electrified floors out of ten. All right. Julie, over to you. Again, we talk about a lot of the things uh, already. I enjoyed this a lot more than I expected, especially after hearing all of the behind-the-scenes nonsense. Um, I thought that they did an actual very good job with the set design um, and everything, given the budget that they had. But yes, there's a lot of plot issues. There's some character issues, and there's a lot of things that weren't executed well. So it's kind of like this weird balance of I liked a lot of it and didn't like a lot of it, if that can somehow work all at the same time. So I'm also going to give it six hashtag chairs out of ten. All right, and Riley? The good things, already mentioned the set design. I think that um, the acting was good. It was in what it needed to do. It was you know creepy at times or, or just bizarre or strange i mean i think you know i think don said it best when you know they were trying to go for like this 
children's nightmare kind of like horror thing going on with it and it was either going to have to be that or like a battle of wits going through the entire episode and they'd never really fulfill either idea all the way which is a shame because it could either one of them by themselves like pushed forward could have been really really good the set design is wonderful it's absolutely just disappointing that this is an episode that three of the episodes are lost because it would have been really cool to see how it looked i yeah and there's a lot of negatives the 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 final final half of the final episode is just just mush and garbage and like just trying to wrap things up it was not very well planned and uh and agree with don like they don't really focus enough on stakes and while i do like the formulaic aspect of the first three episodes i feel like maybe they could have spent a little more time you know going through details instead of spending I don't know, 180 seconds on watching Blind Man's Bluff instead of just cutting to the point of like where it's going to go. So, you know, Joey's will fail or they'll cheat, so on and so forth. So uh, in the end, I think that I'm a, I'm a sucker for like bizarre and weird out there Doctor Who, but I understand this episode, this serial's shortcoming, so I will give it seven macabre children's games out of ten. Excellent. And... For a first time ever, I actually want to revise my score up to 6.5. As everyone else was talking, I actually realized there were some elements of this that, that for me really, really worked. And I, I talked about how menacing I found Cyril, and I thought that was superb. Again, the, the point that was made, the fact that this turned out as well as it did, given how bad it was behind the scenes, I'm going to up it a half point. With that, that gives us a uh, an average score for the story of 6.25. That brings us to the end of our discussion on The Celestial Toymaker. We'll be back next time as uh, we cover the infamous The Gunfighters, which I frequently joke as being Riley's favorite story. So excited, so excited. In the meantime, uh, you can find all of our previous episodes on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D, and we would love to hear from you, so please do drop us an email uh, if you are enjoying the show at Watches4D at gmail.com, general comments on stories, things you want to hear, etc. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, I Want to Talk About Chairs, was recorded on Tuesday the 7th of January, 2020. And always remember, if you know that a chair is probably going to kill you if you sit in it, don't be an absolute